Social Justice Matters, a podcast series looking at the social mission of the Catholic Church. Hello, we're here with Dr. Simon Hewitt from the University of Leeds to talk about mental health. It's obviously quite a big subject, so we're going to focus on just a few points and not pretend like it's all the same. But first, I'm going to ask Simon to introduce himself and tell us a bit about him and what he does. So, I'm a philosopher by training and I teach and research in philosophy at the University of Leeds. I work on philosophy of religion and philosophical theology, so stuff relevant to this podcast, but also increasingly the philosophy of psychiatry as an interest of mine, so thinking about how, how we think about mental illness and the concepts we use in doing that and the problems that might arise out of that. So you obviously have an academic interest in psychiatry, mental health issues more generally, but I know that you do also have personal experience of living with the, these issues as well. Could you tell us a bit about your own personal story? Yeah, so I, I, I guess the philosophical interest is, is a geeky response to the, to the personal issues. So I have um, bipolar disorder, which is a, I mean, a, a serious mental illness. It, it can cause great difficulty. Um, I was diagnosed with that um, six years ago, I think now. And I, I'd been diagnosed with depression for years before that. That's quite common for people with bipolar, you tend to get caught with depression first and it's only when a psychiatrist um, catches you saying slightly odd things that they, they realise there might be something else going on. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a difficult business um, having, having any kind of mental illness, I think, but particularly um, something like bipolar, particularly when it's untreated, I mean, the good news is that, that there are quite effective treatments that can make life a lot better, but it, it can be completely disabling in, um, in, in various ways. I take it people know something about the nature of bipolar, so you, you have either depressive episodes where you typically have very low mood, very low levels of activity and, and other stuff might be going on, and then you can have either what are called hypermanic or manic episodes where your, your, your mood is elevated, that doesn't necessarily mean you're happy, you might be agitated or angry or something like that. And there's different issues with, with each, um, but you feel very, or you feel retrospectively sometimes very vulnerable. You're aware you can't get through this by yourself, that you're um, in some sense a victim of something. And I, I think from a religious perspective, that's quite interesting. It brings out really quite sort of important things about Christianity, of which I certainly wasn't aware before. I sort of <laughs> was explicitly aware of going through this stuff. A lot of people talk about difficulties in labels and language when it comes to mental ill health. I often get a little bit frustrated by the phrase on the spectrum, when people feel they can't particularly explain, you know, something that, that they really struggle to quantify. Do you think there is an issue with, with defining and language and the way so people talk about it? There can be with some things. So I think... Um, the philosopher, I've got to get a philosopher into this somewhere. <laughs> so the philosopher Wittgenstein um, had this wonderful phrase, um, people have an insufficient diet of examples. With an experience of slight low mood, for example, or anxiety, or some things that might be categorised as autism spectrum um, conditions, it can be really unhelpful for people to be pigeonholed. And particularly as a, as a Catholic who would want to, like, 
point to the importance of our moral lives, there's a danger of pathologising things that ought to be seen as potential virtues or whatever. However, something like, for example, bipolar or schizophrenia, severe depression, it seems perfectly obvious that there is something identifiable up here. It seems useful to be able to categorise these in order to treat them. And crucially, um, once you've got a label, you can relate to other people who fall under that label. So, for example, I go to a bipolar support group. If I didn't have that categorisation, that wouldn't be available to me. There's this idea that's becoming current in contemporary philosophy, actually through feminist philosophy primarily, someone called Miranda Fricker, of hermeneutic injustice. And someone is the victim of hermeneutic injustice if they can't explain their experience to themselves because they don't perhaps have the concepts. So, for example, someone who's the victim of sexual harassment in a society that doesn't have the concept sexual harassment knows something is up, but she, typically is a she, can't say what that is and she's therefore the victim of an injustice. Similarly, I think there's a danger of creating hermeneutic injustice for people with mental disorders by this all too ready, let's not pigeonhole people. No, pigeonhole me and give me the pills, <laughs> is my response. <laughs> and, and equally, if you're low, you're not necessarily depressed though, are you? No, um, um, so I think it is right to be sad in response to many events in life. If I lose a relative or a friend, that was a dreadful euphemism. If, if a relative or a friend dies, um, very careful of euphemisms, it is right to be sad. If I stub my toe, it might be right to be sad. Although if I'm as sad as I am when a relative dies, then something is probably up. So for something to be pathological, there has to be a certain inappropriateness or prolongedness, if that's a word it is now. And I think we can ordinarily draw these distinctions. I don't think there's a, there's a great mystery here. I think people are actually pretty good at it. Seeing when something is what Freud called ordinary everyday unhappiness, or when something is, is something a, a bit worse. And so I wonder if you could then Maybe tell us a bit more about um, how you join your academic interest in it with your lived experiences or I know you said your academic interest arose as a sort of geeky response to your personal experience but do you find that the one informs the other or do you find that actually you keep them quite separate in the sense that maybe the academic is too theoretical? That's interesting. So I think I draw a distinction between the two different areas I work in. So if I'm, if I'm thinking theologically about mental illness, I'm thinking about mental illness in the light of religion, it is oddly abstract and I find that helpful. So I, I find it helpful to think, yeah, as a Catholic, I believe that God identified himself with the human race in Jesus and has taken our sufferings to the cross and overcome. And, and, and I'm part of that story. And then at a slightly more abstract level saying, hey, and everyone's part of that story, and that's a, that's a useful way of thinking about mental illness. In a way, that's utterly removed from my individuality. But I, I think that's good. I think it's sometimes good not to be sunk in the midst of your own suffering and to, to be able to put something into a broader narrative context where that narrative doesn't diminish the suffering, but but somehow points, points beyond it. With stuff around um, philosophy of psychiatry, I think I, I'm a bit more engaged in a, a, a more sort of slightly activist-y way against 
Trends, I think, are unhelpful. So trends that are overly sceptical of what gets called medicalisation. The legacy of um, so-called anti-psychiatry and things like that, I am, I'm quite sort of resistant to. And that's coming out of my own experience. I mean, bipolar people are, it has a, you know, it, um, it's a good way to get a seat on a bus. It, it's, got, it's got a certain <laughs> sort of reputation, but um, so people tend not to say such daft things to you. But certainly if you're depressed, I mean, the phrase, don't be depressed, was said to me on more than one occasion. Cheer up is quite, and, and that sort of response, and that sort of stuff is out there and needs challenging. And so there's, there's a sense in which there's a kind of philosophical endeavour born out of intense irritation going on, on on that side of things for me. And you get people that are um, just picking up on that a bit. You often hear people going, but what have you got to be depressed about? You've got this, you've got that, you've got the other. They try and measure it on a look at all these great things, what's the problem type of thing. Yeah, and almost experiential definition of what it is to be depressed is that those things don't make any difference. That you can sit down and do all the exercises sort of my wonderful relationship and my faith and my career and you're not moved it's not even at least in my experience that you feel particularly sad it's just that there is nothing going back to an earlier question that's just very different from things we can identify as non-pathological and I think and of course that's just my experience different the experience of other people who are diagnosable with depressive disorders will be different we need to resist the urge to assume we know what it's like to see things as on a continuum with the ordinary and everyday, because very often they're not. And to assume that people's moods are reactive to well-intentioned things. I think that really matters in pastoral contexts, like in parishes. There can be a great urge to do something with so-and-so, to, to make things better for them. And actually, very often, just letting that person be there is what wants to happen. And, and to be there as you would, but, but not try to shift things because you often can't do that. I wonder if we could talk a bit more about your faith and uh, you've mentioned several times you're a Catholic, but uh, you're a sort of Marks and Spencer Catholic. You're not just any Catholic, <laughs> you are a lay Dominican. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about what that actually means. What is a lay Dominican? Oh, right, so um, the Dominican order, which was founded in the 13th century, is, was one of many religious orders in the Catholic Church. And they all have flavours, they all kind of emphasise particular things. Um, we're an order of preachers, so it's the idea of communicating the gospel, but we think that in order to do that, we need to understand the gospel, so there's typically a kind of intellectual vocation. There's certain kind of emphases, so the Dominicans were formed in response to a heresy, Albigensianism, that um, had, had a downer on the human body and all that sort of stuff. The material world was very spiritual in scare quotes and against that the Dominicans wanted to insist that creation is good. So we're very suspicious of um, dualisms. So in a mental health concept, the idea that mind and body are two completely separate things, I think we'd want to challenge. Certainly St Thomas Aquinas, who's probably our most famous member, wanted to challenge that kind of approach to the human person. It's far more integral than that. So that's Dominicans, um, and there's many types of Dominicans. So they're the best known, who included St Thomas, are the friars, who are male and priests. And then we have two kind of female religious strands to the order. There are nuns, of whom there are none in England and Wales at the moment. Yes. And the last priory was on, on the Isle of Wight in Carisbrook, where I grew up. 
um, but they, they went in the 80s. And there's apostolic sisters who often have teaching or chaplaincy type roles. Lay Dominicans are, are a part of the order, but we're lay people, we can be married, have secular jobs, but we commit ourselves to the order. We, we recite morning and evening prayer daily, we do Dominican-type things like study and say the rosary, um, and we meet together monthly. So it's a kind of um, form of communal life as a lay person that's sort of in the spirit of St Dominic and the rest of the order. Do you know, I've, got, I've only got this question because I haven't been in touch with a good friend of mine from, from way, way back when we were single figures, very young. And I didn't even realise he was bipolar, actually. I knew he was an amazing artist. I did think his art was spellbinding, scary. It was all kinds of things when I looked at it, but, but quite, quite brilliant in, in all ways. And then he started sharing, and this is really the crux of my question, an episode that he'd had where obviously he was hospitalised and it was very, very difficult, away from his wife and children, you know, that side of things that was clearly massively challenging. And he talked about the nursing, he talked about the medication, he was very, very candid and it was really moving. I was quite, quite choked up by the whole thing. But he shared it all, nuts and bolts, on Instagram and it got me thinking, is that good or not? I felt, I felt resistant to begin with, but then I thought, look at all these things and, and all he's saying about the condition and, and you know, pre-misconceptions that people have. And I then started to think maybe it was okay. I mean, there's probably not a right or wrong answer, but what do you think about, if you like, sharing and living the experience with others on social media? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm still working it out myself. So I think there are clear benefits and there are clear dangers. People knowing more about mental illnesses and what they involve is good because it facilitates empathy or puts people in a position where they can be empathic. I, I have my own sort of slight worries about the talk of stigma reduction because it can become as though sort of, for example, being bipolar is just another difference that needs to be affirmed rather than an illness that needs to be treated, which is certainly my, my experience of it. But within those provisos, it's good. I think, and I certainly recognise this in myself when I've been hypermanic, so that's a kind of slight, slight op. Um, there's different levels of op depending on the type of bipolar you have. But almost the pathology can interact with something like social media and you can get, um, you can get drawn intensely into oversharing in a way that's damaging to you as a person because I think part of being a human person with integrity is having boundaries. Yeah. Um, now, those, the, those are the pros and cons. How individuals manage that, uh, certainly I think no individual should feel at all obliged to share anything about their, their health, mental or physical, online. And we shouldn't create a situation where people are expected to do that. I mean, the, the kind of awareness event where everyone stands off and overshares is, is just cringeworthy and damaging. And, and it, <laughs> does actually exist. But I think, you know, there are situations in which relatives and friends actually ought to look out for people and so on, with respect to social media. Now I'm going to ask you one final one from me, and that is, again, not a right or a wrong answer, but if someone who is potentially, like most of us, ignorant but well-meaning, mm -hmm. wants to help somebody with a, a particular mental health challenge, and I know there are many of them, 
What are the sort of do's and don'ts? Are there any, is there some simple advice that you can give with regard to entering into a situation in, in the best way possible or not? So I would say three things, I think. It's always a good idea to say three things. It's <laughs> just about the right number. So I think um, it sounds trite, but it's important to be there. Presence is more important than anything, particularly the presence of people who someone is used to being there. So a common experience of mental illness is you get unwell and then people, because they don't know what to say or do, don't turn up for fear of doing the wrong thing. It is far better that you come round for tea and put your foot in it than you vanish out of a person's life. Because particularly if you're depressed, for example, you're then immediately saying, I was right to think I'm useless and dreadful because no one wants to see me. Secondly, don't do what's called bright-siding. That is almost universally unhelpful. It's, it's well-intentioned. I, I think there's a certain generational aspect of this, but it is generally a bad idea to, to say to someone, oh, never mind, or it's not that bad, or whatever. Now, there may be like professional contexts or contexts where someone's more intimate with the person. Perhaps it might be different if you're a partner or a parent or something, where it is appropriate to say something in that ballpark, but I think you need to be very careful and good advice is don't. Thirdly, just be prepared to encourage people to seek medical advice. I, I think we don't do that enough. And that can be quite casual. Have you seen the doctor about this, where someone hasn't left home for a fortnight or something? And it's surprising how, how infrequently that was said to me retrospectively, but I suspect how infrequently that kind of thing is said. And it's a good idea to do that. I agree. I mean, I think that's that your last point there is, again, perhaps generational, where there might be older generations who think, oh no, I'm fine, I'm just a bit down, or I'm yeah. just whatever, and there are obviously big challenges around older people and loneliness anyway, and then, you know, these things of them, not all, don't want to tar everyone with the same brush, but I, I do know of people who are resistant to see a doctor, often because they're scared of what the answer might be, and but actually knowing that the doctor will be will be cool with it and their family and friends will be fine with it and you know people are there to support each other which obviously links to your first point about just being there for people it reminds me of when james and i did had our conversations about death and talking about it and being there for someone who's grieving or bereaved or you know just just allowing them to feel that and in a way i'm not saying they're the same but there are certain parallels with someone who is perhaps depressed or going through something and they just need someone to be there and allow them to, to feel like that. I know when I've been not in the best of places and someone said, oh, have you tried or why don't you do or something? And it's like, I really don't want advice. <laughs> I just want a hug or I just want, you know, it's different. That can be much better advice in the long run by just being a friend. Mm, absolutely. Do you know, I had, um, when I was younger, having, having two schizophrenic uncles, I remember being, I must have been six or seven years old, and I had, and I think this is quite interesting as to how, not all young people, but how young people look at mental ill health. I just thought, well, when's it happening to me? It's going to happen at some point. There's an inevitability about it happening. And then you start to think, is that the trigger? Is that the trigger? Am I feeling bad? Mm. Is, this, is this the start? Is this it? Do you think it's difficult to talk to children 
about mental ill health? I've not tried very much. I generally think children lack some of the preconceptions and perhaps prejudices that adults have simply because they haven't had time to accumulate them. Um, I can remember saying to my nephew that I'd been ill and then describing it in terms of being sad and that was sort of fine. I think he then just ate another sweet or something. I think it's probably a good idea for all sorts of reasons to talk about this stuff in an appropriate way with children, yeah. Well, thank you so much, well, Simon, you. for That's talking to us and being good. so open and, uh, and also informative. And yeah, we, we have our own, have we yeah, have our own sweets, bowl of yeah. sweets, which we're now going to tuck into. Not that our listeners can see them, but <laughs> they are Fox's fruit things as well as the glacier mints. What do you call the Fox's fruit equivalent? I, I think they're called um, Fox's... They're still glaciated. Oh, they are still, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're still glaciated, but they're <laughs> colourful and fruity. Yeah. Lovely. We'll, well have one of those, shall we? We shall. <laughs> Why not subscribe to our podcast? Search for Social Justice Matters on iTunes, Stitcher or TuneIn. There you go. So that's how you subscribe to Social Justice Matters. As well as subscribing, though, you might want to contact us. We want to hear your voice. We don't hear it enough. So how on earth do you get in touch with us? Well, social media is the way. Catholic EW on Twitter or CBCEW, nice acronym that, on Facebook or more simplistically, Catholic Church on Instagram. And then, of course, you can visit our website, cbcew.org.uk, and contact us through that. Steph, I enjoyed that chat with uh, Dr. Simon Hewitt. Bit of a mouthful where he's from. That's the School of Philosophy, Religion and the History of Science at Leeds University. I know, the History of Science sounds like quite a complicated uh, subject area, I it think. It sounds controversial. I know. <laughs> and complicated. Well, I really enjoyed that, and obviously very important to be speaking about mental health, but I really want to know what else we will be speaking about in the coming months. Do you have a little list of things that we're going to chat about? I do have a little list of things. So, as we know, social justice is a rather broad subject. We but like those. We do like them. There's, you know, a lot to, to get your teeth into, I think. Absolutely. Um, so we'll be covering a whole big range of things over the next few months. Roughly every two months we'll be talking away um you do know you've just committed us i know <laughs> to, a, to a podcast every two months that's the good hope. lovely um yep. so various things we'll be covering from areas like domestic abuse and how we can tackle that serious problem yeah to more general things around catholic social teaching particularly around the world of work fairness in the workplace what does catholic social teaching say about work in general We'll also be tackling the really big issues, things like to do with life issues, stuff to do with marriage and family life. There's going to probably be a few changes in the law coming up that I think Catholics will probably want to know about. Excellent. Um, I shall look forward to that. So all sorts coming up. Steph, thanks. You've committed us to an eight-week cycle. So I suppose we'll be speaking to you again in mid-December. Absolutely. Just before Christmas. Yes, when we'll be feeling very festive, I'm sure. OK, silly jumpers? Absolutely. Well, it depends on the seriousness of the subject. <laughs> yeah, OK, silly jumpers anyway. Right, so we'll catch you then. Bye. Bye.